welcome to Climate Fix Podcast. Here we dive into evidence-based solutions to climate change and various other pressing environmental issues. This podcast is created by Americans for Nuclear Energy, a pro-nuclear environmental organization. We take no money from industry or special interest groups. All donations are from individuals like you, interested in a grassroots scientific movement to solve the world's most pressing scientific problem, global climate change. We hope you approach these ideas with humanism and an open mind. Our mission statement is as follows. Nuclear energy is safe, cheap, plentiful, clean, and efficient. It has the capability to stop and reverse climate change while addressing the ever-growing demand for electricity globally. We strive to educate American citizens about this technology and to dispel misconceptions with facts. We firmly believe that both human civilization and industrialism can easily coexist with a healthy environment. Join us in helping to plan a prescription for a feverish planet, or as we like to say, a climate fix. This is your host, Phil Ord. And this is your co-host, Colby Kirk. The name of this episode is Elysium's Fast Spectrum. We talked to Ed File, co-founder and CTO of Elysium Industries, about his ingenious nuclear reactor design, which is able to use nuclear waste as fuel for power with zero risk of meltdown. It is called a molten chloride salt fast reactor, MCSFR. He describes the technology and environmental benefits it brings. This episode will be a bit tech-savvy, so don't feel too overwhelmed. We wish to show the promise and environmental benefits of next-generation nuclear power in this episode. Here's some background on Ed. He graduated from Pennsylvania State University with a degree in nuclear fusion engineering. He went on to contract with the United States Navy and various other contract companies, such as Prototype Operations, FSO, Bechtel Marine Propulsion Corp. He was also in service of the reactors of the Navy's submarine and carrier fleet. Ed is on the technical advisory board of Nucleation Capital, Silicon Accelerator Incorporated, and Averosis Incorporated. He is CEO and CTO of Vortex MX2, co-founder and CTO of Poseidon Atomic, and he has also done work on NASA's Jupiter Icy Moons Orbiter, JIMO. I don't know if I've met a person being involved with so many companies. Seems like Ed is on his way to fame and fortune and potentially saving the planet. I'm so excited to get to know about some of the new next generation technology, which holds so much promise to really bring about deep decarbonization and give humanity all the energy it could ever want without bad environmental effects. From space probes to submarines, it's quite the resume. I'm excited to learn more about this reactor design. I think it's important to know about future reactor designs and where nuclear technology can really take us since they can solve so many problems that traditional anti-nuclear groups complain about and do so with such incredible efficiency. Well, coming up, we talk to the man himself, Ed File. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Hey, uh, so Ed, you are a technologist heading up nuclear energy ventures, some on the cutting edge next generation nuclear technology, but you still support existing light water reactors. Why is this? Light water reactors today are the fastest way to get nuclear power and clean power. So I still support that. And they're very economical as they are today. They could be more economical if they were built faster, had more experience. For sure. Kind of like uh, 
I went to go visit the Vogel plant and um, uh, they were talking about how the first one was really expensive to build, but then the second one, they started learning how to do it better and it just kept decreasing in cost. And they were talking about how if they had a, uh, you know, a plant uh, five and six, those would have been even cheaper. Right. That's a caveat. That's called the learning curve. The problem with the learning curve and what actually happened at Vogel is they built they built three and four and then they stopped building new ones. So the people that knew how to build the base mat are no longer getting experience and they're forgetting it and moving on to other jobs. You need continuous experience, which means you build one and then you build the next one and then you build the next one. So each stage has continuous experience. Well, yeah, it's an important point. Like if, if we have advanced nuclear technologies that are on the horizon and over the next 10 or 20 years, uh, what's important is we displace as many fossil fuels as we can now on the grid, and that requires using what we got. So it's absolutely important that, uh, you know, we use current light water re uh, reactor technology and um, keep everything we have now running as, as long as we can safely run it. So it's, uh, it's an important mindset to keep. And uh, sure. Ed, you have a very promising reactor design. Uh, what is different about Elysium Industries' fast-spectrum neutron reactor compared to, say, a more traditional light water reactor? Well, first of all, instead of water, which will boil at the temperatures that they're operating at, we operate with salt, as in table salt, the stuff that you put on your food. Uh, and we melt that and operate at very high temperatures, and it doesn't boil like water does at any temperature that you'll reach. So we don't have any problems with uh, boiling or pressurized vessels that are very expensive. Um, so we can operate at higher temperatures, higher efficiencies without the concern of water blowdown, um, removing the coolant from the reactor. So basically, you know, there's, there's not much under like extreme amounts of pressure. So you can't really have like a rupture of any sort. You could theoretically have a rupture, but there's no pressure pushing the fluids out. We operate at atmospheric pressure, so you don't have any anything that's going to push the fluid or the fuel or out. And if it, even if it does, it's just going to freeze. And there's another point here where uh, the fuel for your reactor is it's a molten liquid, where um, traditional light water reactors have uh, solid rod fuel. Is that right? That's correct. And that's the huge advantage of a molten salt reactor. We basically take the spent fuel and we put it into molten salt and we've let the gas off and the particulates out and we use it directly. And that saves us about an order of magnitude and cost over making solid fuel. So from an economics perspective, uh, molten salt reactor fuel is much less expensive and we don't replace it. We just add to it um, a tiny little bit every day, as opposed to light water reactors, you replace the fuel uh, every four and a half years and you shuffle it every 18 months. And that all that's very expensive. And we don't have to do that in a molten salt reactor. So economics is a huge benefit. Got it. And uh, may I ask what is meant by a fast neutron reactor? A fast neutron reactor, all neutrons in fission are born very fast. In a thermal reactor, you use light elements like water or carbon, graphite, to slow those neutrons down. And then they fission at, at, at low energies. Whereas in a fast reactor, we leave them at high speed and 
the cross sections are lower, so it doesn't fission as often, so you need more fuel. But they also produce more neutrons per fission when you fission fast. And that's where you get the huge advantage of fast reactors is you have extra neutrons that you can use for breeding new fuel out of fertile fuel, which is fuel that you can't fission directly. But if you uh, add a neutron to it, then it becomes uh, fissionable. Interesting. So the, the, there's just more electron, I mean, there's just more neutrons um, flying around and that allows you to do more, more cool stuff with it. Yeah. You, so a thermal reactor, the cross sections for like fission products and structure are a lot higher. So they absorb more of the neutrons and they eat all the excess neutrons. And in a fast reactor, not only do you have more neutrons, a fast reactor, you have about three neutrons per fission. In a thermal reactor, you have about two and a half neutrons per fission. And so in addition to that, the absorptions in the fission products are lower in a fast reactor. So you don't have as much loss. So you have more neutrons to convert all the fertile materials in the reactor that keeps it from being a weapons material into a fissile reactor as you go. And then you never need to worry about the uh, proliferation concerns. So ultimately, there's a, a different sequence of how neutrons are interacting with different uh, isotopes in the fuel composites. And um, in a way, your reactor is far more fuel efficient than a traditional light water reactor. Far more fuel efficient. A light water reactor uses about 0.35%, less than 1% of the fuel that's mined out of the ground and about 4.5% of the fuel that it's actually put into the reactor. Uh, whereas a fast reactor will consume 100%, well, 99.9% .9 of the fuel that's dug out of the ground. And so we use hundred, 200 times as much of the fuel that's put into the reactor that a light water reactor does before you throw it away. And we don't throw anything away, ever. Well, that's an important takeaway. And where do you source the fuel for your reactor? The intent is to use spent nuclear fuel and plutonium to start up the reactor. And from then on, you can feed it just spent nuclear fuel and consume all the uh, spent fuel. I like to call it stored nuclear fuel because 96% of it is actually still viable fuel rather than spent fuel because only 4% is spent. Um, so spent fuel is a fuel that if we converted all the water reactors in the United States to a molten salt reactor and consumed only spent fuel, that it would last about 1,600 years of power at the current nuclear power rate. If we did all of the power in the United States with the, this salt reactor, then it would last about 300 years. So that's uh, quite fascinating. The current stockpile of what we what you refer to as stored nuclear fuel, which everyone else calls nuclear waste, could actually be the fuel source for your reactors. And it contains so much energy that it would actually go for 1,600 years with the current U.S. infrastructure if we just swapped out those reactors with your design. That's correct. That's correct. And you can also use um, all the depleted uranium that was taken out to make that fuel, and you can use natural uranium as well. So there is fuel to last. If you just, if you do the same thing with all the depleted uranium for making the fuel that went into the reactors, then we're talking 16,000 years.
worth of fuel, wow. right? Already mined. Of course, the goal would be though to increase the amount of nuclear that you use for electricity to closer to 100%, maybe 80% of our power and then use nuclear for process heat as well. And that would use up those resources much faster. But still, you're talking about 285 times as much energy. Absolutely. As was mined out of the, uh, out of the ground. That's interesting. Um, and for like the listeners, uh, how exactly do you turn um, the previous fuel into the salt fuel? This is chemistry, also known as cooking, right? Basically, we take salt and we melt it, and it's a certain kind of salt. It's not just plain table salt. There's two or three other salt components, like table salt can be either um, sodium chloride or potassium chloride. Well, that's two of the ones that we use in our reactor, right? So we take that and we melt it around 500 C, and then we take the stored nuclear fuel and we chop it up into about two centimeter lengths to open up the inside materials and we pour it into the vat of molten salt and one of the components of the salt will steal the the oxygen off of it and um replace it with chlorine and then you basically have your chloride salts the gases the fission gases will come out and the um the uh noble metals will precipitate out and of course you have to filter out the the zirconium cladding Right. But once you have that done, that's our fuel. And we add at that point, we also add uh, or just before we filter it, we would also add for the initial reactor. You would add the plutonium to get the reactor started up. Once the reactor was started, then you leave out the plutonium step and you just make convert the spent fuel and feed that in. So it's basically just chop up and dump in and do some purification and that's it. That's correct. That's correct. And the nice thing about that is this most of the like the Purex reprocessing is a thousand steps, a thousand chemistry steps. The pyro processing is about seven chemistry steps. Our process is just one chemistry step and it's not considered reprocessing. It's just considered conversion because all we do is take out oxygen and we don't take out fission products. We don't take out the actinides, we don't take out uranium. So everything that's in there that protects from proliferation is still in there. So they don't consider it reprocessing. And that's a huge advantage if you want to export this technology to other countries. Absolutely. And that that's also important because in the current regulatory framework, uh, there's restrictions on on who can do that. So if you manage to get a process that safely uh, avoids those risks and uh, what regulators are looking at, then that's a, an economic advantage for your design over other methods of moving nuclear forward. Absolutely. Uh, and the, the fact that it's so easy to make the fuel is a huge economic ba- uh, advantage. The light water reactors, after the plant construction is all paid off, about a third of the cost of the fuel is the making of the solid fuel. Right, the the uranium that goes into that, even the enrichment, is only about ten percent, about three percent of the cost. The, the solid fuel is is the thirty percent of the cost of of that operational cost of running that reactor. Now we're a little, essentially eliminating the thirty percent 
cost of the solid fuels. So our fuel costs are down below 30%. And now we're using waste, which costs money to store. And so that has value because you're eliminating the need to pay, to pay money to store it. So that's actually a potential revenue source. Um, so the economics is huge. Nice. So essentially it is a recycler of the spent fuel. So you don't have to store it and you don't have to reprocess it. All you have to do is add it to the salt mixture. We have to, con- we have to take the oxygen out. Right. Well, that's a, yes. And then, and then you put it in, you put it into the reactor. We, we basically put about um, three kilograms a day and one kilogram lumps of actinide into the reactor per day. So one, one kilogram of, of, stored nuclear fuel every eight hours, right? And that's mixed with the carrier salt so we can maintain our chemistry for it. So it's actually pretty easy and we don't take anything out for 40 to 60 years. Wow. That's amazing. Covered waste, covered cost. Now uh, about safety, why does using a molten salt reactor make it intrinsically safer than a light water reactor? We already kind of talked about that a little bit, but... uh, well, we did, but we didn't cover all the aspects of it. One aspect yep. of it is you don't have to worry about leaking the fuel out, being pressurized, and going airborne. So that that's the one we kind of talked about uh, right. as a huge advantage. You don't, with a salt, what's the last time you threw salt in a spaghetti pot and it exploded? It doesn't happen, all right? So putting mixing salt with water or air and stuff is not an exothermic reaction. You don't make a lot of heat that's going to cause everything to explode. Uh, like happened at uh, Fukushima, you don't make hydrogen that can explode like happened there. Right? It's, it's just salt because the, the sodium and the chlorine are already bound together. So they don't, they don't want to react with something else. So they're already a stable isotope. As a matter of fact, that's why we use the, the chloride salts is because they're so stable and they want to be together that when the radiation breaks it apart, they just go back together about uh, 10,000 times faster than you break them apart. Uh, so that's what makes our fuel so stable in those situations. Other issues is um, because the reactor, the fuel is liquid, it expands, all right? When you heat the reactor up, when the power goes up or if it goes up uncontrolled, it expands the fuel and pushes fuel out of the core and reduces reactor power all by itself. If the temperature gets too high, then it trips the pumps off and drains the fuel to a a shutdown tank that has cooling and the reactor completely shuts down. So we don't have concerns over like solid fuel has of damaging the fuel structure in the core because it's just a liquid. You can't damage a liquid in the core like you can damage fuel tubes in a solid fuel reactor. What happens in a fuel tubes is when you when you overheat them, they can split or they can warp. And then if they warp, then you stop cooling and then they get hotter, uh, even hotter. And then they split open and release the fission products to the water. Of course, the water is pressurized and can release. And if they get too hot, then they will re- the zirconium will react with the water and create the hydrogen and cause pressure transients and then explosions. So we don't, we don't have that concern with a molten salt reactor. Plus if you, if you leak, if you leak the fuel out of the core, remember I said that the chlorine tightly bounds 
binds them, the fuel. It also binds most of the fission products. So the fission products are tightly bound. So even if they're leaked out, they don't go airborne. The fission gases like uh, noble gases, uh, krypton and xenon, they are constantly removed from, from the core. So if you have an, a casualty in the core that leaks core material out, the gases aren't in them. They're taken out and stored elsewhere. And casualty meaning a, a unplanned event that's not a, a, a term meaning harm against a human, <laughs> just for our listeners. To be fair, no reactors, no commercial reactors in the world have ever harmed the public, right? Differentiating at Chernobyl, some of the plant uh, emergency responders were killed, but no one in the public was harmed. No one in the public was harmed at Fukushima. No one in the public was harmed at TMI. We are basically a, a better safety posture than that, but existing water reactors don't kill people in the public either. So they're not something to be feared. Right. It's, um, it's like, it's already so safe. And then now it's this time it's foolproof, um, by just having a, you know, if you have any sort of accident, you just have some radioactive lava you have to let cool and then, you know, dispose of, right. Right. Figure out how to melt it and then pump it out. But that is a good point. Our, our operational temperatures are, about uh, low-end lava temperatures when we're operating. Full temperature operation is about the temperature of lava, about 750 C. That's cool. And didn't you say, uh, I think I heard you say earlier that uh, let's say there was a an accident, your fuel can be like literally fuel that's that has undergone an accident can then be used as fuel again in your reactor, right? Yes, we've already talked about reusing TMI fuel and Fukushima fuel. How do we convert those those uh, melted down materials into fuel for a molten chloride fast reactor? All right, so it's possible to do that. And we've talked about using the um, the used fuel or partially used fuel from other molten salt reactors, like thermal molten salt reactors that can't close the fuel cycle. We've talked about using that fuel as well. The difficulty is, you know, we make we make 30 times as much energy out of the stored nuclear fuel that comes out of those reactors as the reactor that made it in the first place. So there's an enormous amount of energy there. And so for every light water reactor making fuel for our reactor, we need 30 of our reactors to keep up with the light water reactors still making fuel. Oh, so hypothetically, in these new types of reactors, like the one that you're uh, uh, coming up with, uh, we can get to a point where fuel is such a small point, a small part of the cost that it's 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 basically nothing. Uh, even better than that, right? So initially, the stored nuclear fuel and depleted uranium have a cost to store them. So initially, at least, these fuel these materials are a possible revenue stream, not a cost, right? But for, as a fuel goes, if, assuming we didn't have stored nuclear fuel and depleted uranium, and we were just using natural uranium, we're talking about 03 to 3% of operational costs. So there is very little of the operational cost of the reactor that you have to be concerned about. And that has huge advantages. 
because existing reactors and coal plants and gas plants are all optimized to maximize efficiency to reduce fuel use and fuel cost. But if the fuel cost isn't a player, then there are other costs that you have to be concerned about that are bigger player in the economics and you can re-optimize to get those costs down because you don't have to get fuel costs down. So one other cost I had in mind was uh, labor as far as operations. And, you know, we, we kind of get images of what a control room looks like for a traditional light water reactor um, for the operation room. Um, what would the operator's room look like in a plant operating your reactors? Would it, would it be any different? It would be much simpler. Um, I come from working with the Navy, all right? their control rooms are much simpler than commercial nuclear plants. And yet we're designing a reactor that is passively safe and passively self-controlling. So the control room is not per se a control room. It's more of a observation of operation room so that you know what's going on in the reactor. And if it's going to shut down, you can preemptively notify the grid operator that it's going to go down, but you're not doing anything to control the reactor to make it shut down or make it operate. Operate. The only function of the control room is for initial startup. Okay. Uh, so that when you're filling the reactor, that sort of thing. Now you can manually shut down the reactor by tripping all the pumps and draining the reactor and that will shut down the reactor as well. Typically it's gonna be operating and passively controlled to shut down itself. And, and you're not, and you're not shutting down arbitrarily just to fuel the reactor like you do in light water reactors either. There has to be another reason for that. Now that may be maintenance and so that you still may want to shut down the reactor, but I don't really count that as much of a control feature. It's more of a, of a monitoring feature than a control feature. Okay. So that's cool. So it's kind of, you know, we can finally start imagining a type of reactor that doesn't use those those crazy 1970s consoles that's correct that uh, are like that are basically apollo era instead of spacex era you know i'm still debating whether or not to put a uh a, a padlock on the control room to keep the people out because usually when casualties happen like on tmi and um and uh, fukushima or particularly chernobyl it's human caused um, so people doing something that they shouldn't, that the reactor could have taken care of by itself and stuff uh, can be avoided. I will do that. I don't know whether that will be allowed and I don't know if that's absolutely possible. Uh, but you can always have a, you know, a, a big red scram button outside and that's your control and that's the only control. Got it. That's cool. We um, don't have, we don't have rods in the core to scram either. The reactor is self-controlling on temperature, um, and then if it gets too hot or too cold, it'll scram itself. But it's not rods. It's via, it's via expanding and driving fuel out of the core or draining fuel out of the core. Got it. So it's like a self-heating tea kettle with no steam. Correct. Gotcha. So uh, how we, we touched on this a little bit, but how often does the Elysium reactor need to be refueled? Uh, it can, um, so refueling is a misnomer. Um, in a light water reactor, all the fuel is solid. So you basically 
have to take the old fuel that's damaged out and put new fuel in. That's what refueling is. It means that means taking stuff out and putting stuff in. All right. We do not take anything out for 40 to 60 years, but we put we put fertile material, which is spent nuclear fuel or um, depleted uranium or natural uranium into the reactor every eight hours or so. A very small amount. Got it. Um, and only put it in. But we only take stuff out every 40 to 60 years. And that allows us to put them in, say, other countries and lock the reactor up for 40 to 60 years without actually having to take fuel out, which is the proliferation concern. And we can send a team in and drain the fuel out, take it away, and give them a new fuel load to start the reactor back up. And then it's good for another 40 to 60 years of lockup. All right, so that's that's a huge advantage. The the part that people are usually concerned about for proliferation concerns is the taking the fuel out and storing it. All right, and we don't plan on doing that. That that fuel that comes out will be taken back to a central uh, facility for removing of the fission products or at least the short-lived fission products, right, and putting back into another reactor. We'll leave the long-lived fission products in the core with the uh, uranium and the plutonium and the minor actinides. And so the, that's how those all get consumed. And since we're leaving the long-lived stuff in there, the 300-year stuff, then the that protects that fuel, that actinide, from proliferation concerns. That's cool. What I, what I think is quite amazing is you talk about just a few kilograms a day when, if you look at a coal plant, I think a one gigawatt coal plant will use uh, a, a few hundred car a uh, uh, hundred car tr uh, trains of coal uh, per day, yes. right? Yes, yes. But we use you can you can even compare that pretty much to a light water reactor, and it's it's huge ratios of total mass of fuel input uh, for but for ours compared to, to coal, we use about um, about two to three million times less tonnage of fuel for our reactor than coal. Millions of times less in mass. For conventional uh, water reactors, that's maybe 10,000 times less. Yeah, it's, it's basically when people say, oh, nuclear isn't quote unquote renewable because it uses a, f a fuel. Well, it's like it, it uses such little amounts of the fuel that, you know, in total tonnage, it's less than pretty much any other source of power. That's correct. It, there's about as much uranium in the world as there is lead or tin, and lead or tin are not considered rare at all. As a matter of fact, if you go back to what we were discussing about the cost issues, if the fuel is only 3% or 0.3% of the cost of operation of the reactor, that means that the more expensive to mine uranium is more economic. You could increase the uh, amount, the cost of uranium extraction by an order of magnitude and you would never notice it in the, in the molten salt reactor. As a matter of fact, the uh, extracting uranium from seawater is about twice the cost of current uranium extraction and you can pull uranium from seawater 
that's basically unlimited and renewable because when it rains, just like rain is renewing the hydro source of power, rain erodes, corrodes uranium out of the ground and takes it to the ocean and leaves it in the ocean from which you can extract it. So that's a renewable resource in the same sense that hydro is a renewable resource. Right. And even if you even if you didn't get it from the land, that uranium has been going to that ocean for eons and is oversaturated. And if you pull too much uranium out, you will get uh, a resolubilized uranium from the bottom of the ocean coming back into the water. So there's no possible way of running out of uranium. Exactly. And I think it's just so like the listeners that aren't too privy in uh, the kind of nitty gritty technological details, uh, that's why uh, a lot of climate activists are so now becoming more interested in nuclear because it it, it seems to be the most renewable way to uh, solve the climate problem. Yes. If you compare it to um, coal or gas, you are mining a lot, a lot of resources. If you compare it to solar and wind, about a third of the energy that comes out of those devices is already expended in the mining and resources and manufacture of the devices in the first place. So they, they use several orders of magnitude more resources in the solar and wind than a uranium nuclear plant does. Gotcha. Um, yeah, that's an important point. Uh, just all the steel, concrete, rare earths. Uh, I tend to think, you know, it's more important to think of the metric of sustainability rather than you know the term renewable, because uh, the term renewable has been sort of politically defined in, in a way where there are, you know, rare earth elements that are far more scarce than uranium being put into these devices that are not getting extracted when the solar uh, photovoltaics get you know thrown out or um, disposed of, so um, I think of tellurium, for instance, which currently the dominant model of solar panels, the cadmium uh, uh, tellurium composition, and tellurium is like the only way we get it is a byproduct of copper mining, and uh, it has a very limited supply on the planet, and um, at least for economic extraction and. Uh, when you look at the numbers as far as how much of the t world's tellurium is going into uh, photovoltaics the and how much is left, uh, you, you sort of see how limited the scalability of these technologies are and how there are real-world constraints on uh, how much they could be built out. So looking at nuclear, where you have this you know modest amount of steel and concrete comparatively for the energy you're getting out of each plant, um, and plus the, the fuel, as we already discussed, is so abundant, um, it's, uh, it's really clear to see that nuclear is a far more sustainable total system than, um, what's being proposed with, uh, wind and solar farms. All those, all those mines that are extracting materials for solar and wind, indeed for, uh, for, uh, steel and fertilizer, particularly and stuff, they all have uranium in the tailings for extracting, you know, iron and, uh, and phosphates. So you can pull uranium out of that, those materials as well for stuff that's already being mined for some other purpose. That's true. I'm aware that rare earth mining, uh, most of those rare earth elements come out of monazite sands. And monazite, uh, by default, has either uranium and thorium as um, one of the ingredients. And a lot of that gets dumped out in uh, slag ponds. And 
uh, just sort of left there to not really be used for anything. So specifically, that's what essentially ended um, uh, rare earth mining in most of the world started by the United States is the the decay products from the thorium and uranium in those tailings when you took out the the rare earths, which are not actually rare, but when you took them out, that concentrated the decay products, the radioactive material. The thorium and uranium is not really radioactive per se, right? Because the half-life is too long, but their decay products are. And when you took the stuff out that you wanted, the the rest of it, the tailings became more radioactive. And basically EPA shut that down because that was a new mining resource that they were trying to regulate, even though iron and phosphate mining was already doing exactly the same thing, they were grandfathered, right? So rare earths were just disadvantages. They became important to industry and technology at a much later date than the phosphate and the iron were. So so they essentially got uh, banned from mining in, in the United States and then most of the rest of the world uh, were uh, followed suit, except China. And so they're the only source of rare earths today because we forced it on them and they didn't follow the rest of the world on eliminating rare earth mining. Right. There's a, a Bay and Obo and there's the uh, certain regions uh, in China. There's newspaper articles have done uh, like publications on this uh, where it just shows the images of these uh, toxic lakes and uh, pipes of, of slag waste just getting dumped into them. And uh, it's it's really concerning from an environmental standpoint. So, with your reactor, like how, how why is your reactor good for the environment? What's what's your selling points on the environmentalism aspect of it? We use very few materials. We have a higher efficiency, so we use less cooling resources. We can cool via air cooling instead of water cooling, like water reactors do. And the mining, since we we use about uh, uh, almost 300 times less than a light water reactor uses, even the uranium mining is less. So the amount of mining needed for a reactor, of uh, the, the molten salt reactor is much less even than a light water reactor. And for a light water reactor, the mining compared to say coal or gas is much less. So from a from a environmental perspective, you are digging up far, far less of the ground to get those resources. Wow. Good to know. I was just going to say, uh, kind of back to some environmental issues. Uh, the people are always concerned about the waste. We've talked about this a little bit before. And um, your reactor eats it up. So how can you explain, like for the kind of basic-minded among us, why a fast neutron reactor uh, allows you to use waste as fuel? Like, like what is the waste that you're turning into fuel? So the waste, what is called waste out of a light water reactor is they put, they put a lot of uranium in there just to get the reactor critical, right? But there's only a tiny amount of fissile material in it. Most of it's fertile. And most of the fertile never gets converted into fissile because you don't leave it in the reactor long enough. So they end up burning about 3% of the fissile and 1% of the fertile gets converted and burned in the reactor, and 96% of it is left, right? So 96% of the, of the fuel 
is left that we can still use, right? So that's the part that we take and convert. So it's considered waste because the fissile has been used up out of it and because it's got fission products and it's too damaged to use again in a light water reactor. And then it's not economic to reprocess that compared to mining new uranium today because uranium mining is very inexpensive with regard to the cost of uh, power in nuclear plants because it, the nuclear plants are very fuel efficient compared to other sources of energies. So we, we use essentially all the rest of the stuff that these other reactors don't because we have those extra neutrons that we talked about before to convert more of that fertile into fissile and actually fission it to fission all of the actinide species, which is the, the uranium, the plutonium, uh, um, and, and higher actinides. Can you uh, really quickly explain what's meant by fertile and what's meant by fissile? A fertile material is a material that if you add a neutron, you, it makes it fissile and you can fission it. A fissile material is one where you can add a neutron and it splits apart and releases all its energy. Right. Right. So basically it's one neutron, the fertile is one neutron off of being fissile but you can convert it. But the fertile is, is needed in the fuel because if you had only fissile, there's too much reactivity to control and because you can make nuclear weapons out of it and they don't want to do that. So they require you to keep at least 80% fertile in there so that you can't make a weapons out of the fuel for the light water reactors. So basically a, a fertile element is one that needs to be given an electron Sorry, how do I keep saying electron? It needs to be given a neutron to get heavier and more unstable, so then uh, another neutron can come and bust it apart. Exactly right. Got it. Okay, cool. Um, so, so yeah, I was talking to my nuclear friend about some of the physics and stuff, but uh, we're all uh, nuclear. Yeah, <laughs> right. We're all nuclear. Uh, the it's just the fast neutron. He was talking. He he said that. Uh, like fast neutron reactor reactors have what he calls a high neutron economy or something. And that basically they just have so much neutron flying around that it, that's able to just basically, uh, take whatever kind of, you know, fertile or fissile material and, and turn it directly into energy. Yes. For the, yes. That's that three, three neutrons per fission compared to two and a half neutrons per fission. And because the cross sections are lower when it's fast, you end up with about a factor of 10 to 100 higher neutron flux in the reactor than a, in a thermal reactor. So yes, you have a lot more neutrons to actually put neutrons into the fertile and make it fissile, but the neutrons are also fast enough that you can actually, in some cases, fission the fertile material directly because the, the neutron has so much energy in it that it just blasts, the, the blasts it apart and actually gives you more neutrons um, than three. Like uranium-238 gives more neutrons per fission if you fission it with an extremely fast neutron, which you can do. So in our reactor, you get we get about 10% of our power from direct fission of uranium-238, which is a fertile, which hasn't been made fissile. 
So we actually save a neutron. Because you just hit it so hard. You just hit it so hard that it blasts apart. Cool. And uh, for our listeners, can you explain uh, really quickly what a cross-section means? Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. A cross-section is the likelihood that it will uh, undergo a fission if uh, hit by a neutron, right? Yes. It's just a probability statistic of a measured amount, right? So the probability that it'll hit it. The the name that's actually used is a barn. Because it's like when you're on a farm and you're standing outside of outside of a, a barn and stuff, and you had a gun and stuff, and you shot towards a barn. It depends on how close the barn you are as to how big and likely to hit that barn that you are, and that so that's where the phrase you know you couldn't you couldn't hit the barn if you were inside it, and and that's like that's like boron or lithium six. Right. It's it's like, you know, hitting, being able to hit the barn from the inside, shooting out. Right. You can't miss it. <laughs> That's but, true. but a fast neutron is more like, you know, you're uh, you're 200 paces away and trying to hit the barn. Right. That's a lot harder. Right. But when it does hit, it hits extra hard. But it hits extra hard. That's correct. Cool. Because it's moving very fast. It's moving about. um it's about moving about a hundred times faster than a thermal reactor. Dang, lots of energy going on over there. Sure is. When you do nuclear engineering, you learn how to think on a log scale, which means everything changes by factors of ten instead of factors of one. We're talking about factors of ten, do you think maybe you could get like a factor of ten decrease in cost uh, per like for electricity with this reactor? Like, do you have maybe a figure or a cost per kilowatt hour of what? an Elysium reactor could potentially produce? Uh, this is where the difficulty comes in. In a nuclear reactor, uh, a light water reactor, only about 15% of the cost is the nuclear plant, right? So you could take the nuclear plant cost down to zero, right? And you wouldn't decrease the cost of the power plant by an order of magnitude. You, you decrease it by 15%, right? So it's not the nuclear plant alone that gets the cost down. You have to work on the the power conversion part of the plant, which has a lot more components, which goes to, do you want, if you don't have a fuel cost, do you want to use the low fuel cost, the fact that you don't have to be very efficient to simplify the power conversion system to reduce the complexity of that plant to get that plant's cost down, right? So that's one of the advantages of of our reactor is we don't have to worry about fuel cost. As a matter of fact, it's an advantage to burn more stored nuclear fuel. So maybe it's worth reducing the cost of the power conversion unit and the rest of the plant to do that. One of the big advantages of the high temperature reactors is you can get rid of the decay heat much easier to air because of the high temperature. Water reactors, you have to have water to cool the reactor because you have to keep the temperatures down below about 300 C. But in a high temperature reactor that's already operating at 700 C or 750 C, then you can, can you can transfer heat to air much, much more efficiently than you can um, from a light water reactor. And so your heat exchangers get small enough to be economically viable for getting rid of decay heat. What that means is the reactor part of the plant 
can be all self-contained with regard to passive decay heat removal. Whereas a light water reactor, you still need to be able to move water. And part of that power conversion unit is used to move water to keep the reactor cool, right? So that makes a lot of the components of the power conversion unit safety related, right? And high cost. But now if we go to a high temperature reactor, like a molten salt reactor, you can eliminate that need for that water uh, power conversion plant um, to be part of the safety system and dramatically remove, remove the cost, reduce the cost of that. Can you reduce the cost by an order of magnitude? I don't think you can because there's a lot of different things in a power conversion unit um, that you do need to have like turbines and you need an electric yard, you still need a fire department um, to be able to uh, fight f electrical fires in the electric yard and the turbine yard and the generator, that sort of thing. Um, so I think a lot of those components will still be there, but we are working to optimize to reduce the cost of the power conversion unit um, similarly dramatically to the reactor reduction in cost. We can't just focus on the reactor. You have to look at the rest of the plant that does has nothing to do with the reactor. Indeed, one of the ways of possibly reducing the cost of the uh, power plant is to say, we are just supplying heat and you can compete the power plant against many other vendors for each reactor and have a different part because they're not part of the safety system. That means you can get the compete the cost of those plants to get the cost down for every plant that you build. And so you don't have to work with one vendor and then they basically have a monopoly on building the plants, right? Once you have a monopoly, that's part of the thing that makes the plants expensive. But you can basically just hire anybody that builds a coal plant to build the power conversion uh, system on this and that'll be a lot less expensive because there's a lot of experience out there building these power conversion units for coal plants today. And oh, by the way, if you think about it, if we're trying to get rid of coal plants and you wanna save the jobs, well, just convert them to making power plants for uh, nuclear plants at the same temperature range. That's a good point. James Hansen even authored a, a study, I think back in 2012, it was shortly after uh, Fukushima, I remember, where he talked about one of the fastest ways we could displace fossil fuels is if we start converting current coal plants by just swapping out the coal furnace with the nuclear reactor and uh, you know keep the conversion side of the plant still operational and everyone stays employed and uh, you know the talent is transferred. Um, and you don't have to build a whole new plant if you can just swap out the heat source. That's correct. And China is planning on doing that. That's what the uh, HTRPM is all about. It's specifically designed. They're building a lot of coal plants now. They're all brand new. So the power conversion units are very new. And they're building the HTRPM to specifically replace the coal burners in those plants. All right. So, yes, that's very economic, even though they're still building coal plants. All right, we can do we can do that. But what you're talking about is backfitting into plants that are in the United States that are old coal plants because nobody's built a new coal plant in a long time. All right. So the question is, have they been refurbed and what condition are they in to be able to build a nuclear plant that's attached to it that's gonna last eighty or a hundred years? All right, is it worthwhile doing that? But yes, we operate at exactly the same temperatures 
at least at the initial temperatures of molten salt reactors as a coal plant does. So we can get the same steam conditions and feed that to the power conversion units for the steam plants. Can you explain what power conversion is again? Power conversion, uh, generally for uh, nuclear plants and for um, coal plants, what that means is you produce steam, you take the heat, whatever source it is, and you boil water and you make steam and you heat it up even higher than ju just boiled off temperatures. We call that superheated temperatures. And then you send that steam to a turbine. And then a turbine is driven by that high temperature, high pressure steam, spins the turbine and attached to the shaft of that turbine is a generator that generates electricity. And then the, the, the steam is coming out of the end of the condenser is taken and condensed and pumped back into the steam generator. All right, so that's that the power conversion unit is basically the, the, the steam plant that drives the turbine and giant drives the generator, includes the generator, it includes the uh, device, the heat exchanger that condenses the steam and the pumps that pump the water from whatever source it has for cooling water is part of the power conversion unit. And then you have to have a, a, an electric yard for converting that power and transformers and breakers for safety and stuff to put that onto a, a high voltage power line um, to go out to the grid. All right, so that's all part of the balance of plant. The management of the plant, folks, the firefighters are part of the balance of plant. The people planning the maintenance is part of the balance of the plant and stuff. Most of the maintenance being in the power conversion unit because they have so many more components than the reactor does. The difference is a lot of the, a lot of the systems in the power conversion unit, if you can shut down like one train and do maintenance on it while the reactor is and the generator is still running, whereas in the nuclear plant, most of the work Maintenance work cannot be done when the reactor is operating for safety reasons, right? So you have to shut down the reactor, shut down the power conversion unit. So that's an economic hit when you have to do maintenance on the on the reactor part. Interesting. Now, obviously, the turbine and the generator work is also you got to shut down the reactor if there's only one of them. So mm. that, it's not the it's not just the reactor, but most of the stuff in the reactor is, you know, you got to shut down. And what they typically do in the light water reactors is they have this uh, planned extremely well and the refueling and the maintenance are done at the same time when the reactor is shut down so well that the reactor still operates 93% of the time. Good timing. At 100% power, by the way. Yes, extremely good timing. A lot of other countries don't have that. Um, they don't have that uh, very high efficiency for shutdown and maintenance that the United States has. How could this reactor be scaled? Like, uh, how soon could it be built and operated? How could it be used? Like, what, what's uh, some of the applications or plans to, to get this reactor out to the world? The goal is to have a demonstration plant built uh, by 2027, uh, which is a very small reactor, uh, and then start, then use that information to build the uh, larger reactors. Um, I talked a bit about what this plant could be used for and about decoupling it from 
the uh, power conversion system. One of the reasons for decoupling it from the power conversion system is we're at such high temperatures that you can use it for other process heats. You can use it to make hydrogen. You can use it to make uh, fertilizer. You can use it to make cement um, to displace those CO2 uses. You can make use it to desalinate water or heating buildings. Um, many, many uses. So, But one of the the preferred uses is to essentially build these reactors uh, as floating reactors uh, in the ocean and submerge them under a platform and use the energy from the reactor either as temperature and or as electricity to extract hydrogen and uh, CO2 from the seawater and then use a system for converting the hydrogen and the CO2 into synthetic fuel, convert the hydrogen into fertilizer and stuff in the ocean. Uh, so you have an ultimate heat sink uh, of the ocean, so you never lose the heat source, but you can, since we're driving the cost of operation down by driving the fuel down, cost down and the plant cost down, you can uh, drive the cost of the fuel conversion down too to try to compete with fossil fuel as fuel for airplanes, cars, trucks, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, the reason for specifically being in the ocean is you would need to produce an enormous amount of this stuff to really compete with fossil fuels. So you want to produce it in a location that you don't have to worry about the public being anywhere near it because of the top, because the hydrogen plant and CO2 plant is basically a refinery of sorts, a simplified refinery, and you don't want it near the public, um, but also so the ships can pull up to it either for refueling of ships or tankers can pull up to it and onload it and deliver it to anywhere in the world without having to be um, on a coastal region. Um, being in the middle of the ocean, um, you would pick your location, but a lot of storms are not as severe if they're not, they don't have the, uh, the storm surge coming up on the land like you do in like hurricanes that come on land and they push water from the ocean up higher and go up over the land. You don't have that issue in the ocean um, and you don't have uh, flooding coming down intermittently due to the high rain. So refineries that are on land, like in Louisiana, Mississippi and those and stuff have a lot of storm damage. And, and we don't have that same issue. The reason why the reactors would be underwater is to um, use them as sea anchors so that they will hold the, the, the platform on top um, stable in a storm and you would make it large enough to ride over multiple waves so that you have the stability in storms as well. Obviously you try to put it where you don't have the biggest storms or the biggest waves in that. And one of the companies for, um, for doing this um, that we're looking uh, to work with is Poseidon Atomics. Um, and that's that specific connection of doing it in the ocean and using the molten salt reactor to get the cost down are the thing the two things that really fit together well oh yeah it was, uh sounds like a pretty ambitious uh, set of goals um what's the do you have you run into any uh legal or regulatory 
obstacles in in a business model like that? The uh, biggest, the two biggest difficulties right now uh, for our reactor design is uh, getting funding for doing the reactor design and building the demo, uh, but also getting access to the stored nuclear fuel and the plutonium. With I consider the access to the stored nuclear fuel and the plutonium being the biggest issue because like the stored nuclear fuel officially in the 1990s, the DOE was supposed to take ownership of that. But when Yucca Mountain got shut down, they never took possession of it. But as far as the utility is concerned, the DOE owns it and they don't own it. So we can't get it from the utilities either. And the DOE still doesn't want to take ownership of it because they don't have any place to put it, right? So getting access to that stored nuclear fuel is, is very difficult. In the United States, the only plutonium that we have in quantity is weapons grade plutonium, all right? So that's a very big political issue trying to get access to that, especially after the, um, the MOX facility in, in South Carolina was shut down. Um, it's very, very political to get access to that. One of the nice things that I didn't really go into in our fuel production process is if you only have weapons grade plutonium to use, but you mix it with, with stored nuclear fuel, there's enough stored nuclear fuel plutonium that is, that is reactor grade, i.e. less than 10% plutonium uh, or more than 10% plutonium 240. It's actually about 33% plutonium 240 that when you mix it with the weapons grade stuff, that's coming out of the weapons that's excess, then you can denature that, make it non-weapons grade before it goes into the reactor. So you have a fuel production facility that takes in weapons grade material and then makes it non-weapons grade before it goes to any of the reactors. So the reactors don't have to worry about handling weapons grade material from a security perspective, right? But that facility still has to be have the security to handle weapons grade plutonium. So it has to be category one security facility. And then getting access to the plutonium, you have, we have to talk with the National Nuclear Security Agency to try to get access to that. To get access of this, the stored nuclear fuel, we need to talk to environmental management because they're the ones that are supposed to own it, all right? Different, and then the people getting the license for the reactor is Department of Energy for nuclear energy. So we have to deal with three Department of Energy divisions to be able to get uh, access to the fuel and build the reactor, right? That's that's a huge political challenge. And to be clear, MOX fuel is uh, short for mixed oxide fuel, which is part uranium and part plutonium uh, at the right fissile component. Right, for, of, of the oxides. There's also a mixed nitride fuel. Good to know. And uh, the plutonium concern, when you, when you say weapons-grade plutonium, you're referring to plutonium uh, of a high percentage of 239, which Correct. is the concerning weapons-grade. And uh, if you get the percentage of plutonium of 240 high enough, then it's no longer useful for weapons. Correct. So weapons-grade plutonium is typically about 93% plutonium 239 and 7% plutonium 240, all right? So all you need to do is add about 3% that to get past the 10% plutonium 240 or below 90% plutonium 239 to be non-weapons grade and put it in the reactor.
one of the other nice things about that is is that once you put it once you denature it and put it in the reactor it never goes to a stage where you have weapons grade material again that's important throughout its entire life all right so if you think about a light water reactor technically a light water reactor you're putting uranium 235 in as the fissile with uranium 238 over the first two to six months you are actually making plutonium 239 primarily and it takes beyond six months getting beyond six months to convert enough of that plutonium 239 into plutonium 240 to make it non-weapons grade so plutonium 240 actually comes from making the 239 first and then converting that to 240. so when you first make plutonium it's all weapons grade stuff all of them only caught one neutron right? and so light water reactors go through that and 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 our reactor well unless you start off with halo and then it would which is high assay low enriched uranium that's uranium enriched to in our case about 15 percent uranium 235 instead of the less than five percent in light water reactors important numbers but if you started with with just uranium you will go through a weapons grade plutonium stage not that that's an issue because our reactor is still locked up from removing anything for 40 to 60 years but you do go through a stage of of weapons grade plutonium in the reactor but we don't take anything out so that wouldn't be a problem but it's much better if it never had it in the first place especially if you're exporting it to other countries true and what better way to get rid of nuclear uh weapons nuclear material than turning it into electricity right that's absolutely right well specifically we denature the weapons grade plutonium before it even goes into the reactor that is a huge advantage. Denatured. Denatured means making it more than 10% plutonium-240, right? So it's not the reactor that's getting rid of it from a weapons perspective. It's the fuel production facility that's getting rid of it as being a possible weapon, right? Once you've mixed it with stored nuclear fuel, you cannot make it into a weapon. You cannot pull the plutonium out and make a, a what is considered a weapons grade of plutonium out of it to make new weapons because we mixed it with too much of the plutonium from out of the light water reactor fuel and once you mix your isotopes then it's hard to separate no one to my knowledge has ever done isotopic separation of plutonium the radiological issues of separating plutonium are are, are too difficult Interesting. to imagine i mean the united states doesn't even enrich uranium anymore let alone trying to do it with plutonium interesting this is all like really interesting stuff um can i ask you really quick what where did you come up with the term elysium um that was one of my colleagues they had started a uh company that uh um elysium uh, I, i'm not sure exactly why but it's like it kind of kind of fits because elysium like the elysium fields and stuff like that is basically the new life out of stuff that's essentially died and so if you're if you're converting stored nuclear fuel into our fuel that's like bringing the stored nuclear fuel back to life in a better in a better way so elysium fields and stuff if you've seen a lot of different movies or the stories and stuff is you know it's a special place where life is really good oh cool well uh do you have uh any final thoughts and where can listeners find out more about you and Elysium Industries. 
So as far as where can you find more information about Elysium Industries, we are we have a number of different um, YouTube videos that you can look up. If you um, look up Elysium and file, P-H-E-I-L, then on the internet, on a Google, you can find a lot of videos about our design and how it works and what our philosophy is on that. Um, Titans of Nuclear has a uh, has a podcast. Um, One fifteen is an interview with me about our reactor. That, those are probably the best ways. We do have a website, ElysiumIndustries.com, plural on, on the industries and those spaces that you can go to, um, but is not currently up to date with the latest information and links for the videos. Um, we are currently working on that. So in other words, what I'm saying is the design information that's on our website is old and outdated, no longer current. Okay, that's good to know. I guess the other thing is that um, we are operating at very, very high temperatures compared to water reactors. So we want to displace a lot of the process heat industries that are currently using fossil fuels. Uh, most of them we can displace. Um, things like cement are 1450. We only plan on going up to 950 or 1000 C um, capability, but we can do um, thermal boosters to get to 1450 to get the temperatures that you need to make cement to reduce the CO2 production from cement. And since we're at high enough temperatures, taking uh, like iron ore from room temperature up to 950 C is worthwhile compared to a light water reactor and steel production is a possibility at about 1750 or 1850 C um, because you use other methods like electric arc or hydrogen to get there. And since we can make hydrogen, we can do that, that use of the hydrogen to get up to the temperatures you need for steel making to displace those process heat industries. There's a possibility that since light water reactors are already in a supply chain and be being built, that it might be better to take the high temperature reactors for advanced reactors and start displacing process heat with those first. And then as you get your supply chain built up larger for that, then start displacing light water reactors um, because you can get to higher efficiency and of course you want to consume the waste and you can't do it if there's a large number of light water reactors you have to eventually eliminate them but today they are just making fuel for our reactors that can be stored that we can consume at a later date so that's not really uh, an issue in my book because we we can easily store it until we get the supply chain built up and the process heat uses um, built up if we want to decarbonize the world or reduce the pollution. And that's the end goal of uh, the climate the climate movement, so. Yes, right, but you wanna use all the tools that you can. So light water reactors are going now, they only make electricity for the most part, so why not use those for electricity and all the first, you know, high temperature reactors like the molten salt reactor, you know, try to start to displacing fossil from, from process heat. It was a great talk. Learned a lot about your technology and uh, some other 
technical challenges that are facing the nuclear industry and how you're solving them. So we appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. I was very happy to be here. Uh, I enjoyed talking with you guys very much um, and letting people know that there are other alternatives out there for nuclear plants. They can solve a lot more problems than just the late water reactors today. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll talk to you later. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, that was a really fun discussion with Ed File, talking about the ins and outs of his next generation reactor design, especially the cool things it can do that our current power reactors can't. We want to thank Ed for coming on the show and educating us, being the busy nuclear technologist he is. Absolutely. It's great to know that the nuclear power industry is still in its infancy and that we have just touched the surface as a species when utilizing nuclear power technology. Nuclear power is good today, but it's still able to be much better. Nuclear power is by no means a relic of a bygone era. What are your overall thoughts, Colby? Well, I think it was a great conversation. It sounds like he has all the advantages you would want out of an advanced reactor. I like how the reactor runs on current stockpiles of spent fuel or what many consider high-level waste. And its ability to operate at much higher fuel efficiency is also impressive. So I really hope we see these reactors built out in the coming years. How about you, Phil? What's your takeaway from this conversation? Kind of as we said above, I like how this goes to show that nuclear power is still an evolving part of our lives. Many people just want to relegate nuclear power to the dustbin of history, like it's something to be forgotten. And you hear this quite often. Oh, nuclear is a technology that's just had its, it's past its time. That's simply not true. Nuclear power was terrific in the 60s and 70s. It is terrific now, and it can be better than ever in the future. The technology has so much potential for clean energy compared to just wind and solar. This concludes this month's podcast entitled Elysium's Fast Spectrum, talking about the waste-consuming molten chloride salt fast reactor. If you like what you heard and want more content, you can support Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast on a per-episode basis with Patreon. Link in the description. To support Americans for Nuclear Energy and our general mission, visit our website at www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. All words, again. That's www.americansfornuclearenergy.org. We have a link to donate with PayPal under the Mobilize page. You can also purchase some Americans for Nuclear Energy swag under our store page. This will really help us pay for the little things, especially online service fees, to keep our organization running. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. Lastly, we really want your feedback. Let us know your thoughts, questions, and concerns. We have a message form on our website under the About section, or you can email us directly at main at americansfornuclearenergy.org, all words. Again, that's main at americansfornuclearenergy.org. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Americans for Nuclear Energy's Climate Fix podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you.